This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can help and inspire more women to join, stay, succeed, and actually lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zaro, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show about how to learn how to learn, how we can teach our girls and ourselves to take on the new and the unknown with courage, curiosity, and confidence. Our guest today, Miriam Peskowitz, is not just an expert guide. She is the living embodiment of Brave Curiosity. Some of you may know her as the co-author of The Daring Book for Girls, or as the woman who gave us the truth behind the mommy wars. She's joining us today to talk about her newest book, Code Like a Girl, Rad Tech Projects and Practical Tips, and what she's learned throughout her fascinating journey, which included being a classical cellist, an associate professor of religion and women's studies, a New York Times bestselling writer, and now web developer and software engineer, Miriam. Welcome to Women at Work. <laughs> I'm laughing. That's a crazy description. <laughs> I think so, too, and it's kind of delicious. Because I'm imagining when you were, you know, 14, 15 years old, I'm guessing diligently practicing the cello. Absolutely. This is not how you mapped out your career. Oh, no, no, no. I, I, I thought I'd either be a cellist or I would go to law school because that's what you know, people kind of in my circle aspire to. <laughs> yeah, it's where articulate people with uh, uh, attention to detail went. Exactly. To have a, 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 you know, productive career. So tell me, um, how did all of this unfold? Well, it's, you know, it's been a whole life. And it, it when you, your phrase, brave curiosity, is just a great one. Um, because in some ways, I think that's what I did. I mean, I kind of had a an early start as a, as a cellist, right? Not professionally, but... In, and, and did you terms. love it? Or was this something oh, that was I did love it. Yeah. put upon you? Oh, no, I really love... When I was a teenager, I really, really loved playing the cello. It turns out that I didn't really, really love the idea of being a professional cellist. So <laughs> Why not? Because it's hard. It's really hard. And, I mean, I'm not suggesting that you... You don't go for the hard. You clearly do. So what right. was it about it that turned you off? Right. Because we want to find the hard that we really like to go for. Um, I just didn't love being in conservatory. And I think also I have that kind of brain that's like, I like to do lots of things. So <laughs> and for listeners who may not be familiar with the phrase, a conservatory is a very serious environment for high level musical instruction and development. That's right. I went to Juilliard pre-college for conservatory for two years, and then I applied and, and was accepted to the Oberlin Conservatory. And I last, I mean, I f- officially lasted two years, but I was i was checked out before that. The world is so big, right? <laughs> <laughs> and to succeed in, and be happy in a conservatory environment, you've got to be obsessed with it. You have to be really obsessed, and you have to want to do that thing for the rest of your life. Right. And yes. all day. <laughs> Every day. All day. And without talking, that's the whole thing. You can't talk to anybody. You're in a practice studio or, you're, or you say things like, that should be louder. That should be slower. That you know. And yeah. And so the life of a musician is one of intense focus. And so, you, but you were at Oberlin. There are lots of things at Oberlin. There were so many things to do. And I tried so many of them. So yeah. So my second thing, I became really interested in the liberal arts and I thought I would be a philosophy major. But there were not enough people in philosophy. You know, there's it's still very a very abstract discipline. So I thought, oh, comparative religion. That's kind of like philosophy, but with people in it. I, I, that's a great way to right. adapt that notion, right? So I became a major in comparative religion, and that was you know, not super fun, but it was really <laughs> engaging, and it was global and multicultural, and it was just really interesting. So I thought, oh, I'll go to graduate school and get a PhD in this because Oberlin is really a teaching college. So I had uh, really good examples of professors who really loved what they did. So I thought, aha, uh-huh, I don't have to go to law school. I never got close to going to law school, by the way. I never took the LSATs, never did any of that. But I thought, oh, I'll take the GREs and go to graduate school and get a PhD and be a professor. And that will be my career because when you're a professor, you can do lots of things. And I thought that would really be Even though the last perfect place for me. <laughs> getting a PhD is in some ways not that different 
than being in conservatory and focusing on instrumental excellence. There is a rather intense focus that comes with most PhD programs. Absolutely, absolutely. And mine was ancient. It turned out to be ancient religion. So I'd learn all these languages. No, I really was doing the same thing over and over again. It just looked different. Um, so, yes, I you know, learned all these ancient languages and I did my master's and my Ph.D. and I got it done in six years and I got a job and I you know, wrote the articles and wrote the books and the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you really just parlayed your personal discipline and ability to pursue something to the point of excellence to an entirely different field. I did that. Yes. Okay. Yes. So, but it wasn't just comparative religions. Also, a whole gender thing came oh, into play. Yeah. Here. So... I mean, life is really a journey. We say that, right? But what if we're open to it, it, it really is. So I I landed in um, Durham, North Carolina, which is where Duke is, thinking I'm going to go get my PhD in religion, which I did. But I had no idea truly that they had this world quality um, cross-disciplinary graduate program in women's studies. Right? I have now, to tell my daughter because this is the thing she's interested in. Yes. Okay. <laughs> and... Also, I, I landed there in 1987, which is right when cultural studies and critical theory was just taking off in the U.S. So it was just this most exciting moment in academia. Um, that's a little under known at this point because mm-hmm. it's, you know, 20, 30 years ago or whenever it was the ancient days of academia. But it was just a really interesting time where you weren't stuck to a single discipline. So I got to Duke and I took classes in women's studies and I, I worked with a historian, Kristen Nuschel, and I, I took classes all over. Um, and I did write my PhD. <laughs> I did get it done. But it was very cross-disciplinary. Um, and it was a really exciting place to be a graduate student and a young prof- you know, a young professional at that time. It must have been fascinating. Yes. I find it fascinating that you found a way within academe to connect the dots between comparative yeah. ancient religions and gender studies. Yeah, it was um, a place where you could do that. And also I... I took classes with, you know, it's all about the details, right? So I took classes with people who are in the Department of Religion, but my women's studies classes were with everybody from business and law students to anthropologists to, I mean, everybody took these classes. And I came out as a really different person than I thought I would be. Um, and I'm still close with my mentor from the time. She was the director of women's studies. Her name is Jean O'Barr, and she's retired um, over the last few years. But she was really a mentor in terms of thinking about what knowledge is and how we have to reframe it, that it's not just the add a few women into the classroom or into the topic and you're fine. Like well, that Once you do that, you have to rethink what the structures are and, and so what the whole thing is. So how did you change in that process? Oh, I became so much smarter. (laughs) (laughs) I would hope after six years of study and a a, a dissertation, you would. But really, what did you learn about yourself in that process? I learned that one could go wide with how we see things in order to explain them. And that that's really the crucial thing. And I learned to not be afraid of someone else's field of knowledge. So give me some more detail if you can. Help make this real right. for the listeners. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm thinking here we are in at Wharton, right? And like all other places in academe, it's divided into little disciplines and mm-hmm. little fields. And you're supposed to get really good at that. But I learned that if you kind of disrupt it from the outside. So, for example, um, when I was working on ancient uh, religion, I looked at the first and second centuries, which is early Christianity and big changes in Judaism and the Roman Empire is doing it. So, like, that's just all the stuff that I was looking at. Um, I was also reading this stuff in, like, 19th century women's history because that field was blowing up and they were asking all kinds of new questions about how women related to each other and formed alliances and wrote books and did all sorts of things in you know in industry and i they were asking questions that nobody in my field asked so i thought oh, i'll ask some of these fields fields questions in my field and come up with some new answers or i you know really paid attention to women uh, feminist archaeologists for example and they would come up with great uh, metaphors and uh, ways that they were approaching um, the study of, of antiquity. And I thought, oh, I'll take their questions. Um, so in a way, yeah. 
not to, and I'm going <laughs> to um, unintentionally vastly oversimplify things. Excellent. But it sounds like um, part of what you were doing was by connecting the dots between what seems at first to be wildly divergent fields that have nothing to do with each other. You were actually connecting the dots between ways of asking questions, who asks the questions, and how that helps us understand history. Exactly. There's an example I remember always, which is a feminist archaeologist talking about imagining people with faces, historical people, because we tend not to. If you think about it, we just think, oh, there are these masses of people. And she just had this wonderful phrase. It was at the end of of her her book. And she said, you imagine people with faces. And that was just mind opening to me, because once you do that, then they're old, they're young, they're female, they're male, they're everything in between of everything. And it just, it animates and it brings the whole kind of dusty, arid knowledge to life. And also suggest that by doing this, because we talk about this all the time in business, that if we diversify who's asking the questions, who's framing the research, who's driving the projects, if that is a diverse perspective, we will get different answers than we would have gotten otherwise. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's one caveat, though, which is to make sure that when more diverse people are in the room asking the questions that they're really asking their questions. That's a right? really good point. Because we've all been in a lot of places where the the people look different in the room, but we're all asking the field, the same old field questions. Yes. And sometimes yes. that's because the room has not become inclusive enough for the different voices. Right. Or it's that we can't get past our old habits. Which was it in academe for you? And were you supported in asking different questions? Oh, that's a really good question. I was. Um, I was actually ridiculously well supported. <laughs> so kudos to Duke for that. Kudos to Duke and to my specific professors. You know, there was just this wonderful environment where people were trying to ask these these different. They were trying to ask what new questions can we can be asked um, and what new frameworks can be used. They weren't trying to just do the same old thing. So there was a lot of excitement. So you came out of this yep. kind of self-created exploration right? Um, and went on tenure track, actually, you know, got tenure. Got tenure. Yeah. You were teaching. You mm-hmm. didn't stay at Duke. Where'd you go after that? Oh, I went to the University of Florida in Gainesville. Okay. Yes. And busy teaching students, doing research. Doing the whole, all of that and more. Yes. And then what happened? Um, oh, it wasn't as... <laughs> It wasn't as fun as I'm not talking to like a department chair right now. (laughs) No, I'm not a department chair. So basically, um, the University of Florida gave me tenure after five years. Well, because that's what they did, and I was, as you can imagine, a young maniac. So I thought, (laughs) okay, you're doing it in five and not seven. And so, just so so people can clue into what kind of superhero you are, that there's usually a seven year path to tenure, right? And so, okay, so super achiever here, you got in five. I got in five. And then I got pregnant. Okay. Okay. So first child, all I was married at the time. And, oh, I was also commuting between Gainesville and Atlanta and flying all over everywhere. So I was 34 years old and I had just gotten tenure and I was just exhausted too. I would imagine. And then I was pregnant. So here's what happened. And this is all about women at work, right? So I busted my, you know what, and, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm pregnant, so I'll just go to the dean's office and figure out what the family leave policy is. So I And did what that. year was this? This was 1980, no, sorry, no, 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 1998. Okay, I'm guessing there was no family leave policy. There was policy. no family leave policy, which was crazy because I thought, honestly, like 30, young 30s, like, I've been a feminist for 30 years. What is the world, what's going on right. here? And you're also working in a community of enlightened people. Exactly. So I was shocked, right? And then it turned out when I dug a little farther that a lot of employees at the university had some kind of basic family leave, but they still imagined that professors were men and and thus didn't. And so the maternity this. question. That's right. Had not come up. And of course, and nobody had also thought, oh, maybe dads might want some time off, too. So nobody what a novel thought about concept, any of right. Right. Or that a family might be constructed of two dads. Two, two dads, two moms or right. anything. They had not thought about this at all. <laughs> so for those who just tuned in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Laura Saron. My guest today is Miriam Peskowitz. She's the author of Code Like a Girl and The Daring Book for Girls and The Truth About Mommy Wars, which I have a feeling we're going to talk about in just a moment. Um, I'm Laura Zarrow, and you're listening to SiriusXM 132. So with all that, 
So now you're ready for maternity leave, for which there is no real system there. Right. The real system was you're supposed to give birth in June. (laughs) That would have been handy. That would have been handy. And then you have the summer and then you get right back to work, which would be fine if it if it worked. But it's not fine. These things rarely work that way. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, I mean, because details matter. So what happened is that the official line was, we don't have this. Right. But then the like the secretaries of the dean's office like called me the next day saying, well, we have this this thing and you can do this leave or that leave. Like they had this this weird like workaround that they did. So I think that's like they were jerry rigging leave for you out of other policies. Exactly. And if you're in the hospital, like they said, oh, are you going to have a home birth? And I said, I hadn't really thought about that yet. They said, well, don't have a home birth because if you're in a hospital for overnight, we can get you this medical leave thing. But they had figured out how to jerry-rig the system to help usually mother, you know, young mothers who are professors who needed this. So on one hand, like kudos to them for like, exactly. you know, it's like the inside secrets of the network right. that helps mm-hmm. and that they were trying to help. But it's insane that that's what it had to it's be. It's totally insane. It's totally insane. And um and in the end, I kind of took unpaid leave and I had a baby. And that's when I also had a moment to think about what I wanted in life. And did I want to keep being a professor or did I want to start anything else? And I realized what I really loved about a professorial life was the writing. And that gave me my answer about what would be next. So you were so this really was um, a significant. So while you had a small zigzag in moving from music into scholarship, really. Mm-hmm. Um, this is now your next zig in the zag. That's right. <laughs> Act two or three or whatever right, it is. So that yeah. you're carrying the part of this where now your head's filled with, with all kinds of information and a process of learning. Mm-hmm. But you're going to start writing. And you're now a new mom right. with a young baby. Mm-hmm. And this is around when I had my baby, too. Mm-hmm. And I recall everywhere I turned, Every time I saw an article, every time I listened to the news, I was getting some kind of or just sitting around having drinks with my friends or, God forbid, around my parents and their friends, hearing different stories about whether my working while having a baby was good, bad, righteous, irresponsible, all kinds of messages that were out there. Yep. And um, in the thick of it. And um, you apparently not only were in the thick of it, but you decided to have a little conversation with your readers about it. I did. <laughs> so I had already published two academic books, right? And I knew I liked writing. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm taking this leave. And you're right. I remember that time so clearly. I gave birth in mid-1998 or September of 1998. And that's all anybody talked about. And um, so I thought, I've got to figure this out. And, right? and, and that conversation of, was it, were we hurting our children by staying at home? Mm-hmm. Were we hurting exactly. the feminist movement by going to work? Right. You couldn't win. You And that big New York Times article, the Lisa Belkin article came out about the opt-out revolution. You know, are you wasting your education if you're not uh, continuing to work after you have kids? And I thought, but wait a second, I would have loved to keep working after I had a child. I just had a job that was not at all cooperative. It wasn't I, – I, I knew that it wasn't that I was making a good or a bad or a mediocre choice – it was that the structures of how we work were not enabling any decent choice and, at that and, time. And for those of you who are just tuning in, A, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. And I'm talking with Miriam Peskowitz about what we came to know as the Mommy Wars. That's right. That's right. And it was all over. I really, You said before... It, you know, you, you'd go to the playground or you'd go to lunch or you'd go have cocktails or wherever it was. You couldn't open a magazine or a newspaper without someone trying to, you know, someone talking about or reading something about this. Um, yeah, so that was the, the book, The Truth the Mom, the Behind the Mommy Wars, because I really wanted to write about how we as individual women could not make a good or a bad choice. And we were talking about all the wrong things, that it wasn't about – necessarily about how the kids did afterwards. We know now that kids come out great. Um, either way. Either way. <laughs> there are a lot of other things and that the things you don't, you know, the things that hurt your children, you don't see coming, right? Um, so whether you're working or not for pay or not is not the issue. But the issue is that our workplaces um, are insane and our workplaces aren't structurally fit for um, anybody having children. Right. 
yeah. that lots of our systems don't work to support working mothers. That's right. And child care is ridiculously expensive. I mean, people go into debt for child care. That's just wrong. I mean, we and we haven't made any progress on these issues for several decades. My daughter is now turning 21. Right. And right. mine's 17. <laughs> That's and, right. <laughs> and I remember vividly the having to weigh out. Um, how could I piece together my sick time, my vacation time? How long could I live without my salary to stay home and recover from giving birth and get ready to come back to work and arrange for childcare, which was mind-bogglingly expensive? It still is. Right. Um, and how unaccustomed and – I, and I worked at the University of the Arts, and the people I worked with were terrific. But the systems were only what was protected by the federal government. Like I was guaranteed my job, but that was about it. That's right. And right. It, it, I remember struggling over that choice of there was first there was the internal choice. What did it mean for me to go back to work emotionally and leave my baby? Right. What did it mean if I left work and would I become stark raving mad, which we all concluded was indeed the case? And then there was the question of how do you afford all of it? But the dialogue that was happening in this country was pitting woman against woman and making it seem like we were the villains no matter what the choice was. Absolutely. Really terrible. And the book, I think, did a wondrous job of, of lifting our eyes up and out. Say so it's not us. It's not each other. Right. It's right. the systems that we're in. That's right. We're not really mad at each other. We're <laughs> mad at this thing that we can't give a name to. Right. And that we've been struggling with for so long. And so the choice became in some ways an illusion because it, we weren't just making choices around our emotional needs. That's right. We were That's making right. choices about really serious financial practical issues that often we had no choices. That's right. That's so right. as you published the book, what was your life like? Did oh, you get yeah. ensnared <laughs> in the mayhem? For, like, taking a stand on behalf of all of us? Um, a little bit. I don't know if I became ensnared, but I love that phrase, ensnared <laughs> in the mayhem. But I did a, a lot of talking and, and a lot of radio. And I remember at that time doing, you know, really traveling the country and uh, talking to lots of women's groups, including all these amazing women lawyers, right, <laughs> who I never, whom I never became, um, who were really trying to figure this out and really um, working with, at that point, you know, it was 2005, I think, when the four or five when the book came out. And there actually was, over those years, a little bit of movement toward thinking about part-time work in the professions, thinking about what um, salaried women need. Um, so kind of across the economic spectrum, what do women need? And I feel like there is some conversation, some improvement, and then with the recession, everything, every trace of that disappeared. Okay, so we're now yeah. facing the recession, You've got young children. You're right. now a writer, no longer a scholar. Right. Um, you've, you know, survived your own, the mommy wars around you and help enlightened all of us. And the next thing we know, out comes the daring book for girls. Yeah, go figure, Where right? Where did that come from? <laughs> okay, so we're back on these journeys of curiosity. So, um, so around this time, remember, the internet starts in 1993. Right. And blogging starts in about 1998, 1999, kind of early uh, millennium. So um, so what do I do? I end up, you know, I end up like doing what all we, you know, well, all of us do. You know, we have the kid and we teach and we work and we piece a bunch of things together. And occasionally brush our hair, take a shower yeah. and maybe you know, <laughs> sleep once a week. Yeah, I'm still waiting for that. But yeah, exactly. <laughs> Eventually we catch up on our sleep. So I was doing a bunch of things and including um, blogging and also running a blogger network of women who reviewed books and products aimed at women. So uh, one of our clients was HarperCollins, the publisher, and they said, oh, we've got this book, The Dangerous Book for Boys. Will you guys uh, help us promote it? And we said, well, we usually do things that are by, for, and about women. But, you know, if you really want us to, we will. But what we really want is the, the book that you're going to write for girls, we just assumed there is one coming, right? And in some ways, that's been my life. Like, I've been this feminist who's always been, like, surprised that the world is not oh as reformed when I, as you When thought. I first saw the book in mm -hmm. the bookstore, right. and I fell madly in love with it, oh. it was side by side with The Daring Book for Boys. It never dawned on me. They, they actually produced The Daring Book for Boys without even thinking that there would be the companion. I know. Can you believe it? I I know. Well, thank God you were there to correct it. Exactly. Right. So, <laughs> now, I have to say, they did get a few proposals, but the idea, they were too conservative for 
um, for the U.S. So um, so my co-author, Andy Buchanan, and I went up. I remember so clearly we had this 10th floor meeting at HarperCollins, and they said, OK, go home and write. We want it by the end of summer, and we're going to put it out by Halloween, and let's just go do this. So that was kind of life-changing. I had two babysitters, and because by that time I had an infant as well as a seven-year-old, and, um, and it was the best time of my life. Like two babysitters, someone down the street brought over food a few times a week, and uh, it kind of sounds like I a got, dream. It was a total dream. Everybody was taken care of, um, and I would be out there in my backyard, uh, you know, like making wooden scooters and doing all the things. And I, I love working with my hands, so I just was having it was the best. A craziest two months ever. <laughs> okay, so briefly, for those who haven't seen it yet, what is the Daring Book the for Daring Girls? The Daring Book for Girls just pulls together all of this knowledge, whether it's, um, you know, how to tell stories and um, how to do yoga and how to make a wooden scooter or how to make a tree swing or how to do things and like the periodic tables, like all of this stuff across the disciplines and puts it together in a crazy mishmash. I think the first chapter is on basketball and the last chapter is on spies, women spies, (laughs) and then puts it together in this cover. It's like foil sparklies and, uh, you know, this is the daring book for girls and you know green yeah, it's turquoise. beautiful it's beautiful and it becomes a concept of girlhood that's kind of smart and engaged and interesting and curious yes and that's it really has all of that in it and there's the double daring book for girls which is the sequel that's right the sequel came and out my staff later. and i were going through it together today over coffee because they hadn't seen it and included everything from um how to run away and join the circus mm-hmm. yeah. to how to run for president Yes. To um, games for slumber parties. Yes. So to me, and, and I saw them light up that it seemed to represent all the things, all the ways we could be ourselves and engage with the world, some of which align with things that we think of as girly and gender specific, some things that we decidedly don't see that way, and just things that are in the middle and fun. Right. That was really the idea that every person could find themselves in this book. Yeah. And that there's not just one way of being a woman or a girl at any age and that we shouldn't feel constrained by all the things that are there to constrain us. And I'm glad you bring up the idea of being a woman and and not just a girl, because we all now want to do the things in that book. Oh, that's so great. We're the target audience, too, right? Oh, absolutely. Yes. All my books, they're funny books because... um, I write as an adult for younger people and for older people. They're, no matter what kind of press they come out of, they're for everybody. We're so thankful that it, you actually said, whoa, there was a daring book for boys and we need a companion. And this amazing book, which is like a how-to, how to know about, how to do all kinds of crazy things. All kinds of crazy things. And I did them. I was just cleaning out my garage the other day, and I found these stilts that I had made, these wooden stilts oh, that's right. for, the, ma- for the how to run away to the circus, because if you're going to run away to the circus, you need some stilts. Clearly. Right. Exactly. So <laughs> how did you, one, make the list of the things that should be in that book? Oh, um, people ask me that all the time. That was just the magic. Right. Of two people sitting in a room and saying, oh, I always want to know about this. Oh, I think that's great. Hey, what about this? And just and there were a lot of uh, conversations with uh, friends, with people around the nation. Um, someone suggested those sit-upons that Girl Scouts use. I remember those vividly. That's right. Apparently, we found out they only use them in like in the in the east, but not in the west, because the west coast uh, trails are uh, dry. Oh, so you wet. don't need yeah, the you don't wax need the sit-upons. exactly. So things like that. Um, and and the, the sense of what um, I was paying attention to what my own daughter was learning in school, and. Um, and just thought, oh, what about some classics? And what about, um, oh, I don't know. What about uh, inventors? And um, what about how to dye your hair with Kool-Aid, which I think I was my. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, and who the Nobel my, Prize winners who are. Who the Nobel Prize winners were. And, um, you know, the book isn't preachy at all, but things like. Let's look at all the world leaders who have been women and, you know, implicitly, why haven't we had that in our nation? Um, how come there are, you know, 14 million pages of women scientists and inventors, but we don't know about any of them publicly? So, um, you know, there was a real feminist critique and a feminist intervention. In Clearly. The book Clearly. That was not kind of stated. Along um, with how to make a Chinese paper lantern. 
Exactly. Like things that were just beautiful and fun. Exactly. Okay. So now we've had this, we've zigged, we've zagged. We've gone from your life as musician to scholar (laughs) to professor to writer. And now you're making stuff. You're building stuff. And you're teaching us how to build stuff. Did you really make and do everything in that book? Um, If you put it together with your hands and there were directions... Yes, I we did that. One of us did that. Um, usually Andy was the crafts and I was like the, the wood and things like that. Um, there was <laughs> – I'm hedging a little bit because I used to say, oh, yeah, we did everything. And there was a little paragraph about uh, getting out of quicksand. And, <laughs> and one time at an event, you know, this lovely 11-year-old girl said to me, did you really fall into quicksand and you had to get your – and I, I'm like, no, I actually <laughs> didn't. So not everything. <laughs> and you, I'm guessing <laughs> but, you didn't run away and join the circus. I did, you know what? Maybe next. Okay. Yeah. There's still things to do. There's still things to do. Life is long. <laughs> okay. So it really struck me. One of the things about mm-hmm. the tone of the book that is so um, engaging and comforting, but I think important, is that you're giving – it's like a cookbook. Right. Um, with very easy, simple to follow, encouraging instructions and pretty illustrations. But it tells you how to take on these things that can seem out of reach. Right. Because if you can um, walk into a hardware store, which is kind of a culturally guy space, and go to the back and find one of the usually guys um, and ask for the certain kind of bolts that you need to make your own wooden scooter – you have figured out a lot of things about life. You figured out how to walk into a space where it doesn't look like you and do a thing that you didn't think you could do before that's not going to kill you and not going to really even – you might be embarrassed for a moment. But you know, usually they're like, wow, you want a bolt? Cool. I mean they're like – they're crazy, those guys in the hardware <laughs> stores. Um, so it's these little metaphors about what you can do to try something that's a little out of your comfort zone, right? And you can kind of implicitly understand it as, oh, I can – if I can walk into a hardware store, I can walk into a classroom that doesn't look like it's filled with anyone that looks like me or into a profession or into a piece of a profession or any kind of workplace. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the big, the big, big gift of these books is that, well, in the, the small gifts or the multiple experiences you get to have in the things that you learn. But it is this kind of macro way that you are learning to say nothing's off limits. I can go where my curiosity leads me. And with a good set of guides, I can figure anything out. Yes. Yes. Even if somebody who looks like me has never done this before. Absolutely. Okay. So now you have these books. Big bestseller. I heard, I read, by the way, online that this was internet, you know, internationally successful it was <laughs> okay i admit it <laughs> but controversial in australia it was controversial in australia because of the inclusion of um the musical instrument the didgeridoo yeah which um some people in australia some representatives of native peoples in australia felt like that was only something that should be touched and played by men and boys Oh, wow. Now, I have to say, for the international editions, we often didn't write the – I didn't write that chapter. Um, The editors of the Australian version would send them to us, and we didn't know. And, you know, those things are always a toss-up, too, because you're like, oh, here I am in the U.S. Do I have a right to infringe on this thing? But it's like, well, they're – they're excluding girls too, right? So it's it's, it's these things are always you know, so once again place. you're at the center of like a little controversy right. now about things like cultural appropriation right. and respect for culture, mm-hmm. right? Okay, these are complicated things. There's never there's not usually a yes or no, good or bad answer to any of these things, as we've learned. <laughs> okay, so now you're still having wild success, awesome, mm-hmm. very right. exciting, um, and you find yourself where next? Oh, that's leading you into coding. (laughs) Well, the coding didn't happen right away. So after a a book, being an author is a really weird profession, right? Because you it's very hard to write a book. Right. So you kind of need a little break afterwards. So afterward, I was taking a little bit of a break and doing, you know, I got a lot of invitations after and one of the invitations was by the Lego company. And they liked the Daring Book for Girls, and they were launching Lego Friends. And they said, we, we do publishing. Lego does a lot of publishing of books and uh, through, through partners. And we'd like you to come 
work on something called the Story Bible, which is the story of all the. It's not a Bible, but it's like a, you know, a creative Bible of of like the master guide, the master guidebook of the land of Lego friends, right? Like Emma and Stephanie and Olivia and you know all like all five of them. Like, what do they do and who are their parents and where do they live and what uh, was their Garden of Eden? What's their Garden of Eden? Where do they? What school look like? What's their uh, What's their town look like? And the Lego friends are characters in the Lego world. They're characters in the Lego world. And Lego at that point had been predominantly, like like to the 90% mark, um, purchased by and for boys. So Lego was trying to figure out how to become a company for all children everywhere. And Lego friends was their attempt to do that. So they brought me over. And for about 18 months, I worked on that project. And afterward, I would be invited to all of these girls and STEM things because now I'm no longer a a humanist. I'm... (laughs) In the STEM world, and one of those places was the Obama White House. That was having that's a good invitation. Through, it was an amazing <laughs> invitation, <laughs> one of the best ever. The First Lady's staff, Michelle Obama's staff, was doing a series of convenings on girls, tech, media, toys, and had um, amazing people in the room of whom I was the least accomplished, and happily so. Like really happily so. That's my favorite room to be in, where um, I get to learn a ton because I have done the least of anybody. <laughs> and you've done a lot, and so I've that done says a lot, a lot about oh, who was in that room. Yeah, you have no idea who was in this room. It was great. Like big, um, big uh, toy company executives, um, uh, big media executives. I mean, really, I learned so much. That's being, amazing. Being in the room with all of them. Okay, so now you're talking about, you know, you got exposed to the coding world because you're working on the story Bible Mm -hmm. for Lego Friends, and I'm guessing the way that it manifests in a digital world. Mm -hmm. And you're at the White House hobnobbing with the brilliant and influential. And know what they're talking about? They're talking about why girls aren't coding. And that's where the book comes from. Okay, so that's where it comes from. So from that moment... Mm -hmm. To the moment where I have this gorgeous hardcover book <laughs> sitting on my desk. It is gorgeous that I take no credit for that. That is the amazing design team. How did you start amounts. to approach it? Did you know how to code at this point? I knew how to make a little blog and like tinker with the HTML. I knew very little about serious coding. Now, okay. So in all the things that you learned, including m- multiple ancient languages, um, you know, various religions, <laughs> gender theory, <laughs> how to build a, a skateboard and a rope ladder and still to join the circus. You now learn to code. Was that part of the daring book for girls or was that just a little side project because you were bored? <laughs> I'm just laughing. <laughs> this is so much fun. Um, it was not part of the daring book for girls. It was basically I left these meetings, the first of these meetings, and I thought, wow, that was all about code and technology. And I've known this is an issue. I've watched my I watched my older daughter kind of go through school and be really interested and then watch as it became an elective. It's mostly boys. You know, you, you kind of see these things. And the, but that day became very personal to me. And I thought there should be a book because girls predominantly read books. Right. And this is what I do. And well, I've always wanted to learn to code, which was part of it. So it really became the next part of my journey of curiosity and I went home and I started – I mean, the internet is amazing, right? And if it's an amazing thing for anything, it can be dangerous and all those things. But if it's an amazing thing for anything, it's for code and technology. I mean, people who are at their computers all day long put out so much information and tutorials and workshops. So it's actually pretty easy to learn um, if you're an adult to code online. And that's what I started doing. So I learned enough. I wrote a proposal. I somehow convinced my agent that this was a great idea. And she said, yes, I think this is a great idea. And um, six months later, I was in New York at a great conference table of executives and editors from Knopf Books for Young Readers and Random House Children's Books. And they said, we know you just learned how to code and you're a beginner, and we think it's a great idea for you to write a book about it. That's amazing. So that's how that's how it happened. You yeah. got there. For those who just tuned in, this is Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Miriam Peskowitz about her new book, Code Like a Girl. Um, and we're here on Women at Work on Sirius XM 132. So at this point, I, I want to backtrack for a minute because you, I want to shine a light on a little part of that story. Because all often, I think many of us are in rooms, we're listening to the news, we're present and taking in something where we're aghast. 
we become a, a light bulb goes on about a problem in the world and that we say, why isn't this changed? I wish I could fix this. But you actually did this. I actually did this. And, but, but to go back to that, I think that's right. And and a lot of times we think it's been changed and it hasn't been. Or we're just assuming that because it should be changed and it's not that hard to change it that it has been. Right. A la right. your story about why aren't there real maternity leave policies in 1998 exactly. when you're a professor having a baby. Right. Right. But in this case, you were – it was like you were in this moment where it became crystal clear that the fact that girls aren't coding is a big issue. Big issue. How and, big? And talk about why it's so big. It, it's it's so beyond huge. I mean, everything is the internet. There's a, there's a joke. There are tech companies, and we know about all them. And but there's every other company is now a tech company too, right? A you know a, a big home repair company is now a tech company. Um, you know, I was joking with a friend the other day about a plumber. A plumber is now a tech. Company. Everything is now technology based, and everything is changing. Like the Internet of Things is taking over everything. Everything we pretty much everything we do on the grid is figured out by a tech team Mm -hmm. working with coding languages and associated um, devices. And those teams now the the formal numbers, nobody really knows even what the formal numbers you'll hear 30 percent, but or 18 percent or 5 percent, you know, but of women in in tech. But that includes all the women who are on the sales teams and HR and And in marketing and and in marketing. It's not the tech teams. And I've heard I use the 5 percent number because that's what I've heard male developers um, use people who actually are on teams and do podcasts, and they'll say, you know, if a team has five percent women, that's a lot. So I, as usual, decided to go right for the crux of it and learn to code <laughs> <laughs> and to teach others because it's really, it's really a terrible thing, you know, for any of us to be restricted from a knowledge that has incredible power in the world. Yes, and also going back to what you were talking about with your own scholarship, by not having diverse people coding, the code is written differently and it solves different problems. That's right. And we need different voices in there. We need different voices and we need enough different voices so that when they say, wait, we've got to rethink the basics and the assumptions of what we're doing, there's another diverse voice in the room saying, yeah, exactly. Listen to, listen to her. Listen to them. <laughs> right. So, you, so now you're going to you're writing this book. The publisher has said, Miriam, you're you're the one. Right. Let's do this. Um, it's it's intentionally written for girls in a, about um, a kind of endeavor that is heavily gendered because it is so male. Right. So talk to me about how you approached it so that it was appealing for girls and also equalizing. Yeah, that's a great question. And I'll add, and also wasn't stereotypical Yeah, too, right? It's a lot to, to balance. So That's actually a big burden to carry on your shoulders. It was. It was, okay, A, it was harder than I thought it would be. Um, Partly because code is hard, right? We pretend we teach it to kindergartners, and we do need to start teaching it to kindergartners and to all the way up, so uh, kids all the way up, so that they they learn. By the time they're older, they can, you know, they, it's familiar. Um, but it, it is hard, and so I was helped along the way. Um, there's a very active women in tech community here in Philadelphia, and I went to lots of workshops and found lots of supportive people. Um, there were men in tech who, who were very helpful too. I mean, it's a really generous tech community here, and it's a growing community. So um, there was just a lot of help along the way for how to to learn the actual code. Um, in terms of figuring out, you know, I, I by the time I did this book, I knew how to write clear directions. Yes. I knew how to explain gender and why it didn't work. And with the Daring book, I had practiced doing this in a way that wasn't overt and political and preachy and ideological. So I had all the pieces. Um, but knowing how to do that and <laughs> and actually doing it were, um, were quite difficult. And I, I believe in admitting when things are really hard, right? And not just saying, oh, yeah, that was no problem. I'm on to the next challenge. I mean, it was hard. And there were very many times where I thought, next time I come to New York, say, no, you're a beginner. Let's have coffee, right? <laughs> that was the joke between me and my editor. But with um, with lots of attempts and failures and retries, we finally figured out how to do this. And um, I wanted it to be a happy tone because tech is so intentionally mystifying sometimes. Yes. So I wanted it to feel like, hey, you can do this. Um, I talked to lots of teachers who taught technology. One, uh, Vince Day at um, 
uh, Springside Chestnut Hill Academy, uh, said, you know, they're really just five basics. And I thought, oh, okay, I'm going to start there. Five basics. Look, okay. I've been terrified to code ever since I walked away from coding in 1983 in mm-hmm. high school. And, um, and it tells everybody just how old I am. But anyway, um, you made it, you made me actually look at my browser and start clicking. Like I felt oh, unafraid to start to try. One of the things I talk about a lot in the book is how often I goof up, right? There's a, one section that says, I am not a genius superstar. Um, because <laughs> I talked about, I read about putting together a Raspberry Pi computer, which is a little computer core, and you can connect it to your keyboard and your monitor or your TV, and and you have a computer. It's it's amazing. And actually. it's what thirty five dollars. Thirty five dollars, and um, and it took me forever to get this right. Like I was always goofing up, and it didn't work, or I'd break something, or it just I couldn't figure out the directions, and the directions come and the page is like the, they're not really intelligible, at least to me, and. I really write about how it took a lot to do this. And in the book, I write about frustration and you can be really frustrated. And so take a break and go, you know, dance or scream or talk to a friend or try again or um, or whatever it is like these things take time and they're hard. So, um, yeah, I really had to figure out what was hard and how to do it and how not just to be the expert, because it does take a lot of clarifying. Like, OK, if you start with their five basic um, concepts in coding to learn, then then you have a place to start. You can say, oh, okay, functions. Okay, they, they, they do things. They're the code we put together to make something happen. And then, then you can say, oh, it's a variable. Like that's just these places where we store information and we can change the information. And that's why they're called variables because they vary, right? You can put new, new information in them. And that's – so it kind of built step by step, right, just the way any work of writing or production yeah. happens, right? And And – I could see where your expertise in explaining things in engaging ways came to play here. And some of the things that I think are fantastic about the Daring books, that it's like, here's vocabulary. Here's how to understand these words. Um, But there was a purposefulness, I think, a consciousness to that tone of, look, I struggled with this and how excited you were when you got your Raspberry Pi to work. It's amazing. That's the thing about code is that it feels like magic. When it works, it just feels like you did something magical. And I I hope that's the tone that people really get because it's easy to to make it seem dry and like boring and like, oh, you just sit and stare at a screen and nothing's going on. But when something works, it's really extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And so one of the place where I first learned about girls' tendencies to be afraid of failing in coding Mm -hmm. was through Reshma Sajani and, and Girls Who Code. When I think about what they're doing, you know, so important and so enlightening to see how she tuned into the fact that girls were erasing their mistakes, they were ashamed of them, and to see how you've carried this. There's an important shift in what you've done with this book, which is this is not just for girls who code, but quite purposefully coding like a girl. Right. So tell me what that means and the form that that took in the book and why you approached it that way. So um, one of the key elements that I was thinking of while writing this book was perfectionism, right? Because it's what destroys so much good stuff, so much talent, so much ambition. Oh, please, every day. Every day, right? It's like, oh, I can't do that. It can't be for perfect on the first try. I won't even do it. And I was thinking about how perfectionism is not now just something that girls experience, but something that boys experience too. So I thought coding like a girl is letting go of the perfectionism that keeps us back from actually trying something and failing and trying again and iterating and trying again until maybe you get a little piece of it. And I thought perfectionism was that coding is a great um, kind of antidote to perfectionism because developers and coders don't expect that something's going to go right the first time. They expect that you, you put some code on the screen and then you figure out whether it worked or not. And if it didn't work, you ask, how come this didn't work? And you figure out uh, And that's half why. the fun of it. And that's half the fun of it. And they, they that's, just, that's just an assumption of the world. And when I, I, I realized that, I thought, oh, now I have one of the core emotional pieces of the book, 
right? Because a book has to be emotional. Other, otherwise, it's just... And it really you know, is. Yeah. It's so filled I, I with that bring kind emotion. of yep. joy and the complexity of the yes. feelings that you have. That's right. And this is all of what we bring to the learning process, right? So perfectionism just doesn't matter. Like, you can feel free letting go of your perfectionism here because that's what coding is about. It's always going to be a mess. It's always going to take right. multiple tries. It's not tries. a performance. It's not a performance. And the, really, the assumption is not that it has to be perfect on the first try or the 10th try or the 15th try. It's all about refactoring and redoing it and retrying. And an ongoing process of learning and improving. Exactly. That could, could go on endlessly as endlessly. long as our curiosity takes it. Exactly. And then it's it really does feel like magic when it works. Totally. So yep. the other thing that is often magic for me are things that light up, things that sparkle, <laughs> things that delight our friends. That was another aspect of what the projects were that you were leading the reader to code. Talk to me a little bit about how you pick those things. So you can just code and create things and you see the result on your screen, right? And then you can also attach um, a little, you know, through, through wires and cables, attach a breadboard to your computer um, and you can light up LEDs or you can set off motion detectors and you can then program your machine to respond to that. And that's really what the Internet of Things does, right? We have you know, so much going on now in terms of smart cities and um, you know, refrigerators that can reorder your milk from the local grocery when it go, you know, your supply gets low. And I, I wanted with that, I mean, all of that is too hard for beginners, right, as we know. But I wanted to have some sense of, of giving my reader some sense of, hey, this is how it works. Like you still have code and through a series of wires or wireless connections, it goes to a device, right? And that device can do what your code tells it to do. And that device can also take in information and send it back to your machine. And, and, it can, and that in doing this, it makes things that are beautiful and delightful and connect us to each other. Exactly. Exactly. You know, as you talk about the, how ubiquitous coding is and that we don't even see where it is, it reminds me of when um, I try and explain what industrial design was to beginning art students mm -hmm. and the importance of design. And basically, I'd start by saying, and parents who didn't trust whether or not there was work in this field, and I'd say, well, look around the room. Every single thing in front of you was designed by somebody. This is taking that to the whole next level and going digital because it's everything that's functioning electronically is basically coded. That's right. So, A, there's a tremendous amount of work there. Tremendous amount of work. Huge opportunity work. to impact the world around us. And we need women's voices in it. We really need women's voices. Plus, you made it seem like fun. Oh, it's really fun. And I met the the most amazingly wonderful people doing it. <laughs> well, Miriam, I have to tell Coders you. Coders are really fun. I love the tech world. As a byproduct, <laughs> I got to meet one of the most wonderful people. I'm so thrilled that you joined us on the show today. Laura, thanks for having me. It's really been enjoyable. If people want to get your books, find out more about you, where can they go? They're at every bookstore around town or on Amazon or Target.com, the usual ways that you can find a book. <laughs> and thank you all for listening today. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play.